The reading this morning comes from Nehemiah. We are starting at Nehemiah 2, verse 18, and going through um, chapter 3, verse 8, and also reading chapter 4. So if you have a church Bible, it's on page 485, and the words will also be on the screen. So starting at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We're his servants. We start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Elishab, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far of the Tower of Hananel. The men of, Jer- the men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Barna, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joada, son of Pesea, and Meshulam, son of Besodiah. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Merinoth, places under the authority of the governor of the trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Harahiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Now we're just jumping forward to chapter four. Opposition to the rebuilding. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod 
heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. They all plotted to come together and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came over and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore a sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. This is the word of the Lord. Well done, Iona. Let's pray that God will speak to us from his word. Father God, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for this book of Nehemiah that we're digging into week by week. And we pray, Lord, that today you would be able to resource us and strengthen us and equip us so that we can build your kingdom in your strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have got a Bible with you and you can access Nehemiah chapters three and four, it'd be good. And you'll see that actually we're quite compassionate to Iona and actually only asked her to read eight verses with a few names, but there are lots and lots and lots of names in that chapter. If we'd been living in Jerusalem at this time, we would now be noticing that the work that the Jewish people are putting into rebuilding the wall is, is beginning to take shape. There is something to show for it. In chapter 4, verse 6, Nehemiah tells us, so we rebuilt the wall till it reached half its height, 
because the people work with all their heart. But we're getting to see with Nehemiah that he's a very open character and he takes us backstage and allows us to see not just the successes, but also the struggles that come with the territory. And it becomes clear that with the kingdom of God, just as in everything else actually, progress comes at a price. This wall just didn't build itself. It, it did involve a huge amount of hassle. Some people make the mistake of thinking that, well, all you've got to do to build God's kingdom is to pray and, and sit back and it'll all happen. But it never does. And progress never comes just like that in anything. It, it, if you think of any sports person that you admire, any business person, anyone in the army, anyone in the arts, it all takes working at. There's a huge amount of preparation that goes on. And the same is true just on a domestic level in relationships, in marriages, in family life, and amongst God's people. God's kingdom doesn't just build itself. And we can see in these two chapters some of the things that it takes to actually become effective in God's kingdom. Now, I'm going to give you a few highlights just of the facts from chapter three, this long, long list, which on the surface of it looks rather formidable and potentially quite boring. It looks a bit like a telephone directory or, or a kind of workers' yellow pages of builders in Jerusalem at that time, doesn't it? So let me break it up for you just so, so you've got a handle on it. There are 41 groups here mentioned by name, and they involve the reconstruction of 42 different sections. And I think it is remarkable that we have enshrined here in God's word the names of the people who gave themselves to this project. You know, presumably when they volunteered, they had absolutely no idea that they would be recorded in a role of honour like this forever. But we know God's word never will pass away. And these, these people haven't just got their name on the side of a building, you know, so-and-so laid the foundation stone. They'll be recorded forever and ever. Archaeologists love this chapter because from it, they're able to work out more about the layout of ancient Jerusalem. There are 10 gates that are mentioned, including the horse gate, the east gate, the dung gate, the water gate, the fish gate. And Nehemiah lists them in a kind of anti-clockwise directions if you're going around the walls of a city. And probably this wall in all was about two and a half miles long and it enclosed 220 acres. And each section on average is about 250 feet. And amongst all the names, if I just extract a few of the who's who, well, it kicks off with Eliashib, the high priest. And it's just an example here that the priests set to work and they set the example. In verse 5, we get told about the men of Tekoa. And they get a gold star because they're the only group mentioned that, who build not just one section of a wall, but two. It's true, though, that their nobles get a rather a black mark against their name, but we'll come back to that later on. In verse 8, we're told that the Guild of Perfume Makers and Goldsmiths got involved. And I think it's just, use your imagination here, indicates that it's an all-hands-on-deck situation. You know, you can imagine that the hands of the goldsmiths and the perfume makers were not exactly bricklayers' hands, but they got themselves 
involved in the task. Seems rather unfair that one person, in verse 10, Haramath, his name means literally the one with the flat nose. And why you should pick someone up for that, I don't know, but there you are. And when you get to heaven and you meet a guy called Shalom's father here, Halohesh, you might want to ask him what exactly he did because his name means whisperer in the sense of snake charmer or in enchanter. And he's the only person in the whole of a list whose daughters are said to also work on the wall. In verse 20, don't worry, the sermon gets better than this, but in verse 20, in verse 20, it's mentioned a guy called Barak. And it says that he built the wall zealously, e.g. with a good attitude. And, and there's something there to learn, that no matter how big or how small the group of people who join together to work for God, attitude counts. This chap was an enthusiast. And there's one man, Merimoth, who's the only individual who, who gets involved in building two particular sections of a wall he's mentioned by name. Well, now you know a bit more about them. Let's dig into the passage. And I want to suggest that there are four principles here which we do well to get our heads around if we want to see God's kingdom growing or if we want to grow ourselves in our knowledge and uh, our likeness to Jesus. And the first one, the most obvious one, is the most important, often is, often works that way, is a truth that's hidden in plain sight. In chapter 3, there's one word that comes over and over and over and over and over again. And it's the word next to. Next to this person was this person. Next to that one was his family. Next to this one was that family. And the truth that's hiding, a thing you can skip, the thing that you could miss, is this group of people are united. They're united in spirit and purpose, on purpose. It's not an accident, and it didn't come about accidentally. And the reason this is important is because much of God's work never gets off the ground because his people fall out rather than fall in. And also because they're aimless rather than purposeful. Some time ago, I saw a Charlie Brown cartoon. I don't know if you're familiar with Charlie Brown. It doesn't really matter if you're not, because I'll describe it to you. In, in, in segment number one was a picture of Charlie, and he has in his hand a bow and arrow. And he's about to let go of an arrow. Section two, he does that. In section three, you see these arrows on a wooden fence. And then in section four, you see Charlie going up to the arrows with a piece of chalk and drawing a circle around each of the arrows. And the caption is, this way you can't miss. Well, it's true, but you can't hit either. And building God's kingdom, pursuing Jesus Christ, you can't do it by accident. And when you put a group of Christians together, we can't unite by accident either. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippians, says, make my joy complete by being one in spirit and purpose. And when that happens, then a new energy is released into any project. 
Now, you see pictures of this uh, in, all around you, actually. You, you see it if you've ever watched the boat race and, and um, that peculiar English institution of, of two rowing eights. And you know that if one of them drops an oar or gets out of sync, that whole boat will lose energy, lose pace, and actually lose the race. But if they can sync the length of their stroke and the timing of their stroke, they will speed through. And it's the same in the natural world, apparently, the way that geese fly. There's a synergy in the way that when they fly in formation, they can apparently go 70% further in formation than any individual one could go on their own. Something good happens when we get our act together. But mission drift is a real danger for God's people. And I think it's, how could it not be? How could it not be? In any institution over a thousand years old, surely the chance to drift away from the mission it was originally given is huge, and the church is no exception. And without a clear sense of purpose, we can turn church into what's convenient for us rather than shaping it around what Christ commanded us to be. And there are some telltale signs of when this happened. And, and sad to say, you can go into lots of churches and you'll see all these signs. Here, here are some of them. You end up singing, not worshipping. Your focus drifts from week to week so that you attend church to meet people rather than to encounter God. You prefer what's convenient to what's obedient. You notice that you are now saying your prayers rather than praying your prayers. And it's so easy for our outlook to be, so what did that service do for me rather than how is what I'm doing building God's kingdom? Or, this is another danger, but it's rather different, you start seeing sheer busyness as a sign of success rather than thinking, am I putting my weight to something that's going in the right direction? And because they're as guilty of that as anyone else. I can remember herring around, wearing myself out frantically over quite a number of years. And when eventually, by God's grace, I seemed to have a fresh encounter with God, it was almost like God imprinted on my mind that I should start a new tray called Litter, L-I-T-R, less important than revival. And you can be busy till the cows come home, but there's no point in being busy if it's getting no one anywhere. All I'm saying is they were very purposeful and united on purpose. That's step one. Then step two, perseverance is going to be necessary. I, I, there are some words that appear in the scriptures often, and I wish they didn't. And they appear essential, and I wish they weren't. Patient endurance and perseverance are two of a kind like that. We're told again and again and again that they're requirements. And if you dig a little bit deeper in chapter four here, as well as being encouraging because they get the wall up to half its height, it's actually also perhaps one of the chapters that shows us more about what was holding them up in a bad way. 
And it's discouragement. Discouragement. The moment you and I resolve that we're going to pursue God with a vengeance, I promise you discouragement will come your way. And, and here's the thing that is so annoying and aggravating about it. Discouragement and obstacles come in incredibly mundane forms. You know, we, sat, we just sang a chorus, and, and one of the um, lines in it was something like this, what can stop the Lord Almighty, or who can stop the Lord Almighty? And as you're singing it, such is the way of the tune, you kind of think, ah, oh, nothing can stop the Lord Almighty. But I'm about to tell you three things that can stop the Lord Almighty, and they're so pedestrian. And here's the first one. Tiredness. Exhaustion. Fatigue. You know, just check you're awake, <laughs> not dozing. Has anyone ever felt so tired, so fatigued? The thought of picking up another brick and putting it in the wall, you just think, I'm really not sure. Hmm? Great, only me. <laughs> I don't believe you. Just tiredness and fatigue. Verse 10, the strength of the laborers is giving out. Now, over all the years that I've been at the front of churches offering prayer ministry, by far the most common request is, please pray for me, I'm knackered. I'm tired, I'm exhausted. And, and of, course, in, in, of course I'll pray for you, but often the resolution of this is terribly simple. You, you need to rest more. You need to make sure you've got a balanced life. You need to make sure you've got some sleep there. As someone said, you know, if you burn the candle at both ends, you're not as bright as you think you are. But just acknowledging you've only got a certain amount of strength to go around at least allows us to think through, so where am I investing my strength? And, and I make no apology for talking about it, but because if it's what's wearing people out, we need to own it and do something about it. Fatigue, here's the second thing frustration you know in verse 10 they say there's so much rubble we can't rebuild this wall this is so common you set off on some project with huge high hopes and then you discover nine times out of ten that things aren't as straightforward as simple as you thought they were going to be and pursuing God's vision always turns out to be more complicated than you imagined it would be. And borrowing from Rick Warren, when I tell you, he says that rubble is the broken stuff we keep tripping over. And he says, since we live in a world in which everything is broken, there's an awful lot of rubble. And, and it might be physical rubble or emotional rubble or financial rubble, rubble that you've got in part of your life because of bad decisions, but rubble is a part of our lives. We all know that. It's not nice to hear or to know that you have to work really hard to keep this rubble stuff under control. And it's a, it's a never-ending task because trash keeps multiplying when you're not looking. Of course it does. It's, it's like dust at home and weeds in the garden. You, you know, you don't, no one arrives to spread dust and no one goes out to plant weeds. It just happens. And if you don't keep on top of it, it gets on top of you. And rubble is an indicator that we're neglecting something somewhere. And another trouble with rubble is rubble removal isn't glamorous. And it requires a lot of work. Getting rid of all the, all the clutter that there was as they were trying to rebuild the walls. It's a bit like household maintenance or servicing your car. It, 
You know, I don't know anyone really who enjoys these kind of things, but if they don't happen, um, you pay for it somewhere. And then the third thing that, that wears us down is just feeling you're failing. They actually say to Nehemiah in verse 10, we can't build this wall. And, and frankly, there's, there's, there's always an insidious lurking temptation somewhere just to walk away from the project. Just say, this is, this is too much. As I was reflecting on this, I, I was remembering actually a couple of examples. When, when I first went to university, I remember in the first week at university, the professor getting everyone of his discipline together in the first year and saying to us, let me tell you what's going to happen. And he said something like this, in, in about the seventh or eighth week, you'll be walking up to the campus, up this very steep hill, you'll be exhausted, the weather will be terrible, it'll be cold, it'll be raining, and you'll turn to one of your friends and you'll say, you know, I, I don't know that I want to carry on doing this. Why don't I get a, a job where they pay me this is not what I thought it was going to be. It's too demanding. Why don't I walk away now? And he said, I'm telling you this so that even when it happens, you can remember, ah, oh, this is what Professor Leeper said would happen. And sure enough, I think we, we, all, we all fulfilled his prophecy. <laughs> or I think of it how it, it, it comes back to me that just before being ordained, the Bishop of Oxford, um, who was leading a retreat, and had been in ministry for many, many, many years. He just was sharing with us, and he said, I want to tell you, you know, the day might come somewhere down the line. He said, it might be in five years, 15, 30, I don't know when, but the day might come when you go down to breakfast, and it, in, instead of sort of engaging in what's in your diary for the day, you won't. You'll be more interested in reading a newspaper. You'll be more interested in checking the price of a FTSE index. You'll be more interested in sport or anything else because you're worn down by what's going on and you'll, you'll try to disengage. And he said, if you try and separate yourself from the people of God all around you, it's a sure sign something's going wrong. And, and it, he was saying exactly the same thing as that university professor, exactly the same thing, warning us. Nehemiah could have given the warning, in fact, to the brick builders on day one. Don't be surprised if in a few days' time that your enthusiasm has waned. Because it's not difficult, is it, to be enthusiastic at the beginning? You know, I'm sure we've all done this. You know, people who take up a new sport, people who take up a new hobby, um, people who begin a diet, uh, people who take up a new exercise regime. You know, for day one and two and three, you might be full of enthusiasm. But by day 15, you're thinking, why don't I walk away now? It's all a bit much. And these things are incredibly mundane, aren't they? But they don't have to be exciting to be effective. And all the things I've mentioned so far, they've just come from within, pretty much. You know, we, we haven't talked, we're just about to, about the opposition that comes from outside. Let, let's do that. So the second point, first one was united in spirit and purpose, and the second one was we should recognize that we're going to have to endure and persevere. The third one's slightly different. We should recognize opposition and react in a godly way. Because whenever individuals or whenever churches, particularly churches, collections of individuals, determine to head in a new direction for God, you will see opposition. 
And you'll see it for a number of reasons. I mean, as we, as we read through Nehemiah, we, we discovered quite quickly that there's a group of people who oppose him, didn't we? we we've met them before, Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, and Geshem. And they're not just opposition from nowhere for no good reason. They actually uh, inhabit all the areas around Jerusalem. And, and to them, as they see the walls go up, it dawns on them, well, hello, the Jewish people are not just a pushover anymore. Because walls, if you could dwell without, within walls, you were safe. You had a citadel. You, you, you could stand up for yourself. You were beginning to become a power again. When God's people get their act together in our day, when we start praying with unity, when we make a concerted effort to reach out with God's kingdom, when we say, Lord, this is your space and we're going to praise you, come what may, come hell or high water, heaven will always be in the middle of St. Michael's. When we start doing these things, when we start shining the light of Jesus Christ, it's in a spiritual world, it's the opposite of letting sleeping dogs lie. It's going around and kicking a few sleeping dogs. You're bound to have trouble. And to take a phrase out of St. Paul's playbook, we don't want you to be unaware of Satan's schemes. And the tactics of the enemy that we need to recognize, they're all here in Nehemiah, pretty much. I'll just, I'll just list them quickly. So anger, in chapter 4, verse 1, Sanballat becomes angry and was greatly incensed. What he's trying, what's he trying to do? He, he's trying to bully the people into submission. He's trying to kind of blow himself up big time and, and make them afraid. And he succeeds in part measure. And then ridicule and racism. And when this comes your way, it's really not pleasant. The, the ridicule that comes from him is he, he basically says, a fox relieving itself, climbing on that wall, would destroy it. And then he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? And you and I will discover individually and together that the moment that you actually start to become an ambassador for Christ, you'll, you'll invite a mixed reaction. Some people will love it. As Paul says, the aroma of Christ to some is, is wonderful, but to others it's a stench of death. And you might well find an irrationally large anti-reaction to what's going on. And then something else happens here in this chapter too. Those critical of what God is up to suddenly find common cause to unite. We read that when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard the repairs of Jerusalem's walls were going ahead, and the gaps were being closed, they were angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight. You see what's going on there? It's kind of group identity against them. Now, we also, as well as knowing what the enemy is doing, we need to know our own defensive capabilities. And if that sounds rather like a warlike phrase, it's meant to, because there is a spiritual war going on. And the thing that we don't do is strike out and hit back. It's always tempting to do that, but in Scripture, that's not what we're told we should do. What Nehemiah does is a couple of things. First of all, he actually hears the intelligent report. And he says, okay, 
We are now under threat to a level we never were before. I've got to revise the plans. And it's not silly if you set off in one direction and you find that it's not going well and you find you're super uh, under threat to revise things. That's what he does. He regroups. And in order to keep going, he slows things up. I wonder if you noticed that. He gets the men to reassemble by household. And he says, to one lot, you pray, and to another lot, you fight. And one lot carried a gun, as it were. They didn't, they carried a spear. But one lot carried a spear, and the other lot carried a shovel. You might have to readjust how you're doing things, but what you don't do is hit out. It's rather like Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching. Paul wrote in Romans, friends, never avenge yourself, leave that to God. It's written, I take vengeance and I'll repay those who deserve it. Instead, do what the scriptures say. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And they'll be ashamed of what they've done to you. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And here's another interesting thing that he didn't do. He didn't waste his energy or his thought life, from what you can see, criticizing those who didn't join in rebuilding the walls. Because not everyone did. And, and quite a few preachers, I think, have fallen into the trap of when they read in verse 5, the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but the nobles wouldn't put their shoulders to the work under the supervisors. And it's sort of like a gift to talk about, well, they didn't do it because of thus and so. They were too high and mighty. They were too full of themselves. We're not told why they didn't do it. We have no idea why they didn't do it. And Nehemiah doesn't waste any energy thinking about why they didn't do it. He just said they, did, they didn't join the party. Well, I'm not going to waste my strength and enthusiasm on them. I'm going to invest in those who have joined the building party. And that's, that's a very good thing to get into your mind when you engage in a work of God. It'll be disappointing if some of your friends don't jump on the back of what God is doing at St. Michael's. But not everyone will. But let's invest in those who do. That's what Nehemiah does. He, he invested his strength and energy on those who are backing God's plan. And he didn't criticise or, or spend time thinking about or worrying about those who didn't want to. And the last thing is to take a leaf out of Nehemiah's book and simply this, verse 14, remember the Lord your God. I think we're discovering as we patiently go through this book that Nehemiah is a person of prayer. He seems to pray so often and it's become his knee-jerk reaction in every situation. And actually, time and again, when we come across him being put under pressure, he turns it into a prayer. They're not always terribly edifying prayers. The prayer in chapter four is not that edifying, but it is honest. I mean, he basically says, bring trouble on their heads big time so they regret the trouble they've caused. I'm not suggesting that's a model prayer, but it is an honest prayer. And he tells, he tells the people he's, he's leading, remember the God of heaven who will give us success while we, his servants, start rebuilding. And that is an ultimate truth. The God of heaven will give us success. And if he doesn't give us success, if he doesn't leaders, if it's not in his strength we build his house, well then we're getting up early to work in vain, according to Psalm 127. Well, these are the principles that can help us 
as we embark and continue to do what the Lord has asked us to do. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this book, for the searing honesty of Nehemiah. And we thank you that it reminds us to lift up our eyes to see you, to remember the Lord who is strong, to remember that it's your kingdom that we're seeking to build, and therefore we need your strength. And thank you for the reminder that some of the things that hold us back are, are very simple, but we need to address them. Just the, the simplicity of being discouraged, of being tired out, of being overwhelmed by opposition. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see what we need to do to get back on our feet. And we pray that we'd see more and more that your kingdom is coming and your will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.